Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Well, hello, Redemption Hill. We're glad that you, I'm glad that you've joined us today and are continuing to join us to worship each week. It's a chance for us to be able to open God's word together and sing even from scattered places with the anticipation that in time we're going to be back together in this place again as well. Um, one other church family update for you that I wanted to make sure to mention today, and that is that we have an update to our Titus II team. Our um, Emily Stone and Emily Leinbaugh have served on that team for the last two years. It's two-year terms, and um, they have served really well and loved our church very well and are both have chosen to take a step back this year, and um, the team has added Carlo Rodriguez. And so, um, our, yeah, we can, if, if you have a chance to thank um, all of those ladies, please go ahead and do so. Um, our Titus II team now is Alicia Bennett, Jamie Dangers, Carlo Rodriguez, and Lindsay Roper. Um, and so that will be the Titus II team for the coming year. All right, let's pray together, and we're going to jump right into God's Word. Father, we come and are glad to be able to open your word together again and still mourning that we can't be together physically to do so. And we pray today, we pray for the, the ways that people are suffering and it's around us in our city, in our nation, in our world, whether it's the fear and anxiety or the physical suffering that this COVID pandemic has brought, um, whether it's mental suffering and anxiety and depression that's been exacerbated, whether it's the news over the last few weeks is, again, racial injustice has come to, to just explode into the news cycle again, not that it is ever gone, but again with clear evidences of it and the protests over the last few weeks. We thank you for the visibility that's being brought and thank you that it seems like action is being taken and yet we continue to mourn with our black brothers and sisters in particular as they, are, as, as they are again wrecked in their hearts watching, uh, watching the injustice against people that have darker skin. In all of this, we need hope. We need a place to turn. We need something to set our eyes on because if we, our eyes just keep looking down at our circumstances around us, it's enough to drive us crazy. And so we pray today that you would lift our head, that you would, you would open our eyes and soften our hearts for your word. And so we lift this time to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, church, we continue in our series in Romans today. And so we're in Romans chapter 8. And again, a timely text for us as we walk through this passage of Scripture together, this, this letter of Scripture together. Today's text is focused on suffering on how do we make sense of the world around us? Why are things like they are? Why, why are there pandemics and natural disasters? And why it, do we see evil and wickedness of humanity against humanity? And why, how do we begin to try to make sense of the state of things when we look around? And, and, and so this text helps us to be able to see more clearly why this world is like it is. And it helps meet us in our suffering, which is important for every single one of us, because suffering is one of the only truly universal human experiences. 
And so today we turn again to God's word, trusting that it is true and it is right and that it is, it is something that we can cling to even more than our circumstances around us, but it brings great clarity to our lives because it's living and active and speaks even today. And so we're in Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 16 and go through verse 27 today. And so we've seen that we are adopted children of God, and it begins by saying, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen, or hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we, will, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we are talking today about suffering and glory. That is the big theme of this passage. So coming out of this, in Romans 8, we've seen there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That God has done what the law could never do and given us the righteousness of Christ. And then if you are in Christ, if you have turned to Jesus and given your life to him, you are promised that you are indwelled by the Spirit of God. So his presence is with you and takes up residence within you. And then, and the same spirit has brought us together as family, that we are adopted as sons and daughters of our creator, looking ahead to redemption and an inheritance in eternity in the new heavens and new earth that can never be touched. And so this is the hope we look ahead to. And it transitions immediately, though, in verse 16 to say, the spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. And at this point, most of us would be reading this and saying, yes and amen. All right, the Spirit himself, God's Spirit says that I am a child of God, that I am a son or a daughter of the Creator. Yes, and that means we are heirs, that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's amazing. That means that we get the, the depth and the abundance of the riches of God is our inheritance in eternity. Of course we want to sign up for that. And, and so yes, and amen. And then he goes on to say, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that's where most of us want to say, hold on. Paul, I think you got something wrong. Okay, adopted as a child of God, yes. 
heirs, yes, heirs of, of everything that God has, and, and, and you know, children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and, and a fellow heir with Christ, yes, yes, yes. What's this about suffering? It's almost like the apostle anticipates our objections, and so he goes on in an extended form to, talk, to expand exactly what he means. We see the word for in verse 18, that's an explanation. So what does he mean that we need to suffer with Christ that we, in order that we might be glorified with him? For, the explanation, the, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Another explanation. For, the creation itself waits with eager longing, for the creation was subjected to futility, for we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now, for in this hope we are saved. And so he goes on to a lengthy explanation through this to show the reasons that he starts off by saying, if you are adopted as a child of God, you are guaranteed that you are his child. The Spirit himself bears witness to that. He testifies to your adoption. And the way that you obtain the glory of Christ is to suffer with him. And so suffering and glory. First, tonight, today, we have three, three points today. Point two is going to take a very long time. And so just a warning now, when we get halfway into point two and you wonder if I'm in point three, I'm not yet. You'll get it when we get there. Point one, suffering is inevitable. You're not going to escape it. Suffering is inevitable. Suffering is part of the human experience. Every one of us will experience suffering to some level. And we need to hear this because we often turn to religion thinking religion will bring us comfort and ease in an escape from suffering. If I do things right, then God will give me happiness now. And when things go bad, we wonder why God is punishing us. And so we have a very transactional relationship with God by nature. It's a legalistic, moralistic relationship with God that if I fail him, that means it changes his posture toward me. That's not the gospel, but that's what our hearts turn, slide into and drift into. And, and, and so we have this concept of if I'm serving God and I've, I've turned to Christ and if I believe the right things and live the right way, then it should go more easily for me. And then when we do suffer, even, even our suffering, we can have a tendency to find our justification. We find our justification and righteousness in anything. And so we can even find that in our suffering. And so when we go through hard things, when we're in the midst of it, it can be hard for us to even be empathetic with other people that are suffering because we want our suffering to be seen and noticed as well. And so we can even look at our own lives and say, well, I know you've experienced this, but listen to what I've had to go through. And, and so we, we have this weird relationship with this, but, but we need to begin by saying, all of us are going to suffer. The promise of Christianity and the promise of the gospel is not that you escape suffering. The promise of the gospel is that, that suffering, if you are in Christ, will lead you eventually to glory. That there is a time when suffering will end. Not that you're going to escape it now. It's not escapism, and we're going to see that today. But it, that, that you will make it through suffering because Christ has gone before us into suffering and has passed through death itself and has come out victoriously, and your inheritance with him is sealed, not to bypass it, but to go into suffering, leading to death, and that is when you can be resurrected. And resurrected life is better than life without suffering. So we'll see that today. But we need, these are important questions for us because we come back to these kinds of things again and again and again. How do we explain natural disasters? 
to, your, to our friends, our neighbors, our kids? How do you explain when an earthquake hits an island nation that's, that already is poor and it devastates it? How do you explain hurricanes? How do you explain, how do you make sense of a global pandemic? Nobody knows how it began. Nobody knows exactly what happened and it swept the world and there's all kinds of misinformation and we know that it's spreading and we're all anxious and eager for things to reopen and yet as things are reopening, we're seeing like 14 states spiking this week and how do we explain the presence of a global pandemic and how are there new viruses? How do we explain chronic illness and pain and that some people are born into a life that will never experience full health, but will always have something that nags at them? How do we explain and make sense of racism and injustice and violence and wickedness that we have seen over the last several weeks and that has been perpetuated throughout human history? How do we explain and process economic inequality and poverty if you haven't wrestled with that question, that means you haven't been exposed to true poverty. Because when you see true poverty and see how people, are, who, how people live in poverty, it, it, it will crush you and you, it, it raises the questions of how can this be possible? Well, one bit of comfort we have here is that this is not just a human issue. All of creation is groaning. I think in our house, we come back to this passage in Romans over and over again, and, and it's one of our most referenced texts in our, and I know from Alyssa and my, uh, in our family discussions, because um, as C.S. Lewis has said, it's not that, that it's, it's the gospel, it's Christ, it's, he's the one by whom we see everything else. So, so Jesus is like the sun. It's not that we see him, it's that by him we see everything else more clearly. And so we here, this helps me make sense of the world around us. That, that it says to us that the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So guess what? The longing, the, the sorrow that we have within us, looking ahead, wondering why things are like they are, all of creation feels that way. The creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so when we look around us and see natural disasters, when we look around us and see global pandemics and disease, when we look around us and see human suffering and the world being de deteriorating as well, what we need to understand is that what we are witnessing is the groaning of creation under the bondage of corruption that has come from the fall and human sin. That that's what it comes back to. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told that the ground itself was cursed because of Adam's sin. The man and the woman are never cursed in Genesis 3. That this is important to get. The snake is cursed. Satan is cursed. The woman has consequences. The man has consequences. So the woman has consequences that, that there'll be pain and childbearing, and I would argue childrearing and raising kids, and that there's a, there's a clash between the wife and her husband. The man is given consequences that it's by the sweat of his brow that he will now work the ground, but creation will fight against him. But the snake and creation itself are cursed in Genesis chapter 3. And so how do, this is where we begin to make sense of this. It says that creation itself is groaning in the pains of childbirth. What a graphic, visceral image 
I have never given birth to a child. But I've witnessed it up close three times. And I know a lot of people who have children because at Redemption Hill Church, that's what happens, especially during COVID. When, I mean, right now, it's, when I hear that another, another woman's pregnant, I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> that seems to be the season. And it's great, and, and, and we celebrate children, we dedicate children at Redemption Hill, and we celebrate, today we just celebrated family news that we welcomed another child into the church family, and, and so this is a great celebration, but that celebration is not, it does not come easily. Watching my children be born was one of the most powerful and, and memorable moments, all three times, that I've ever had in my life, that, and, and, and one of the most incredible things that I've ever witnessed. Because as a, as a dad, like, I, know, I knew that Alyssa was pregnant all three times. Like, that got obvious. And I knew conceptually that that was true. And I would feel the baby kick as it got bigger. And, 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 I, and so all of that, like, I knew conceptually there's a baby here. But until my, the child was born and I saw their face, I don't think I internalized, oh, there's another child coming. Like, something changes for most men, most dads in that moment when you see your child's face for the first time. And, and watching my wife go through the birth process, that moms are heroes. And it doesn't matter how that birth process looks for a mom. I know even with that, and we, again, we get, people get weird about all kinds of things, but like when I hear moms sh like shaming or having pride in how they did birth and pregnancy and you know, whether they, what drugs they did or didn't use and well, how they did it and what the process looked like and all, that's, that's crazy. Any woman that gives birth to a baby is my hero. Because in watching it, there's, in the labor process, there's desperation and anger and confusion and points where, where she's not sure if she can make it through. And then that fades away. The world changes as soon as that baby is laid on its mom's chest. A new life has emerged from the pain. And it would have been impossible without it. And it makes it worth it. There, yes, there's a healing process, but, but that suffering was worthwhile for the gift that comes. And so that's the, the imagery that Paul is pulling on here for all of creation, that this world is groaning. It is tense. It is, it is filled with that desperation and anger and confusion and not sure if it's going to make it through. That's what suffering is, and that includes us, but it's extended to everything that has been created, all of this place. And so while we eagerly await our adoption, while we eagerly await getting out of suffering we need to, and, and experiencing the life that is promised to us in Christ, we need to understand that when we look around us, that is the state of this world that we live in as well. And that understanding this can begin to give us the ability to endure, that Christianity is not just pie-in-the-sky escapism, and it's, in, it's a real call to courage and endurance. And so suffering is inevitable. Second, the only path to glory is through suffering. There's no other way. That we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see this? That the, the points that he makes here, that suffering and glory are bound together. 
You cannot separate them. We cannot divorce these concepts. And, and this is true for God's children. This is in the context of those who have been redeemed by Christ, who are justified in God's sight, that suffering leads us to glory. And so let's not try to escape suffering, but try to see that suffering has a purpose. You know, suffering and glory here are clearly two different ages. And so we are in an age of suffering. We'll see that as we're going to talk today about the big picture of the gospel. And we're looking ahead to glory. But do you see that it, what it says in verse 18? He says, I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. This light and momentary affliction is not worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory. What he's saying here is that if we were to have a scale, and on one side we put the suffering that we're going through now, whatever it might be, and on the other side we put the glory that we look ahead to in Christ, that it's not a competition. The weight of glory will always outweigh the sufferings that we experience now. Now, we need to hear this truth, but, but let's also be honest, it's hard for us to believe this truth, isn't it? When things are hard, and I'm, I'm not saying you should do this, like when somebody's in the worst of suffering and in a terrible valley, when they're, when they're weeping and don't know, and, and they're in what we've been describing of a time of pain and anguish and sorrow, you should not go in and say, well, you know, this is not where, this is light and momentary. And there's an eternal way to glory, so... Uh, Suck it up, buttercup. You can spout theological truth in a damaging way. No, but this is, the, this is a statement of hope, saying that there's eager anticipation to look ahead. That, that all of creation has an eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. This eager anticipation that it talks about is a Greek word, apokarodokia, um, that means it, it has a connotation of lifting your head and fixing your eyes on a point on the horizon where something is supposed to come. It's, it's stretching your neck to look ahead and try to look far enough to be able to see what's coming forward. That that's the kind of anticipation we have as we look with hope, knowing that something is coming over the horizon. There is hope that's on the way, and we just need to make it to get there. But, and so the, the, the hope that we are given here when it says, now hope that is seen is not hope, but for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is not a fluffy, man, I, I sure hope that comes true. This is a settled expectation that God's word is true and that his promises will be fulfilled and that whatever we face now, that light is there at the end of the darkness. And so the only path we have to glory is through suffering. Now, we, to really understand this, we need to understand the big story of, that we call the gospel. And so we, when we talk about this, we often at Redemption Hill talk about the gospel in a narrative format. There are four major aspects to understanding the good news of who God is and what he's done for us. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so this is the biblical storyline. It begins with creation, that God made all things. The fall, that hum humanity rebelled against God and had consequences that were cosmic. Redemption. That's what's, what happens and is accomplished in Christ. And restoration, that's what we're headed toward. So these are four aspects that it is critical to understand and to hold to the fullness of this storyline, the fullness of the gospel narrative. 
And, and so let's talk about why that matters and what impact that has on our lives now. This is intensely practical. This is not just heady and theological. And so creation. We don't have time to go back to Genesis 1 and talk about this in great detail today. But suffice it to say, God made everything. When it said God made the heavens and the earth, what, what it's telling us in Scripture, that whatever you believe about the age of the earth, the mode of timing of creation, that's fine. Those are interesting discussions. The key in Scripture is that he made the heavens and the earth. That means if you look up, everything you see, he made it. If you look down, everything you see, he made it. He made all things out of nothing. And, and God created everything. And that he created human beings in his image and likeness. That's what we call the Imago Dei. That's why Christians can raise a voice when, there is, when human beings are marginalized and their dignity is robbed from them is because we believe that every person is worthy of dignity and love because they bear the image and likeness of their creator. And so we, ha we hold to creation. We must hold on to creation because if we lose creation in that storyline, then we end up with heresy. This is Gnostic dualism. And plenty of Christians live this way. And we start to believe that the material world around us is corrupt. And we just think this place is, has nothing good to offer us. The physical world is wicked and the spiritual world needs to be our focus. And so we get this idea that, that we are above God's creation and that we have a different place. And, and that means we are above other people as well. That is Gnosticism. It is not the gospel. Scripture tells us very clearly, God made this place and it was good. He entrusted his creation to human beings as stewards to care for it, to cultivate it, to be fruitful and multiply and fill it. And so we hold to creation. The second part of the storyline is the fall. The fall is human rebellion, that given the opportunity, humanity turned against God. We've seen this in Romans, right? That you're either in Adam or in Christ. We are all born into sin in Adam. Every one of us has inherited the sin of our fathers, and it, we trace it back to one common ancestor, Adam. And, and so it was Adam's, in Adam's sin, we were un, united with Adam in rebelling against God, and we are sinners not just by nature, but by choice as well. Or we're in Christ, the second Adam. But that, that's to come. The, if, we, if we get rid of the fall, if we hold that we have creation, redemption, restoration, but no fall, then we're, we fall into universalism. Because suddenly everyone is inherently good. And the world isn't broken by the impact of our rebellion and sin. And so the bad things we experience just become God's anger against us. Like, why would he be so angry? And, and we, we believe that we deserve better. And everyone will get to God in the end. We're all headed up the same mountain, just taking different paths. That's universalism, but it isn't the gospel. And the third part of the storyline, redemption, is that Christ took our place for our sin, on the cross, conquered death for us and was raised to life. That is our hope, being freed from the chains of sin. This is everything we've been studying in Romans so far. And if we lose redemption, then we can easily fall into moralism because we no longer need the cross. We need to overcome our sin on our own to attain eternity. And so we want to try to find ways to earn God's favor apart from what Christ has done. And finally, restoration that God is making all things new and will renew the heavens and the earth for his glory. If we lose restoration, then we end up in escapism. And so you'll be separatistic, 
focused on escaping our culture and escaping this world and removing yourself from it and building big bunkers to protect yourself from it rather than engaging in the place that God has given us. And this is in Western Christian streams maybe the most ignored and misapplied of the aspects of the gospel. We don't understand that God's restoring all things. That's one that we let go of too easily. And if you don't believe me, just try to go to a funeral sometime and listen to what's said at funerals. We don't have a concept of eternity in a biblical sense. And we see it in the church's engagement in the public sphere in the United States, too. Too often, the church misses the actual conversations that are happening because we have no concept of an actual kingdom, an actual earth that matters, with actual people led by a true king, Jesus. But here's the real problem. I, th I think that for most of us, Redemption Hill, we're not likely to just drop out one aspect of the four. But we do have a tendency to choose either the first, either the outside or the inside, and we take two aspects of the gospel at once. And let me explain this. We're watching this play out in real time, right before our eyes, and we see this also in the way that Christians engage in politics. And so if we focus only on the outside, creation and restoration, think about what the implications will be if you gut the gospel of the fallen redemption. Just imagine for a moment what you think that might lead to. Well, the result is a social gospel. We believe that we must bring the eternal kingdom of God in its fullness now, that we must restore all of creation now, that we must see all justice now, that we must see all pain and suffering eliminated now. Now, working for the good of people and the restoration of creation and implementation of justice and to minimize pain and suffering, those are all good things. But if that becomes the only thing that our gospel includes, what we miss is Jesus. We miss and avoid preaching on sin and holiness because it's too offensive and it might cause people pain in the short term. We avoid preaching on penal substitutionary atonement that Christ died in our place for our sin on the cross because it's too messy and it's offensive. What we really want to hear is how to be better citizens. And if we take that approach, we might form disciples, but they won't be disciples of Jesus Christ. And the irony of this is that we begin to look to politics as our savior and belief that, that better policy will guarantee justice. And we, this fails to account for human depravity and the need for a personal encounter with God through his son, by his spirit. And so we'll work to implement somewhat Christian perspectives without a call to Christ. And so often we do see this play itself out. On the other hand, there are some that we see that that don't bracket it, that they just take the inside and have a truncated gospel. And so everything's about fall and, re and redemption. And the result is easy believism. And so and when I was planting Redemption Hill Church, I can remember having conversations with people who were interested and people around the country. And, and I emphasize, you know, we're going to preach the gospel every week. That's what we're, we're never going to have a week that we aren't preaching the gospel. And having people say, aren't you going to have a shallow church? Ah... Uh, I think we're using the same words, but I don't think it means what you think it means. Because what people were hearing was revival meeting, like turn or burn sermons every week. And they're right. That wouldn't lead to a fulsome discipleship for people. 
that would be a shallow church. That's a truncated gospel. For too much of the church in the West, and particularly, I mean, if we're honest, the, uh, for the white church in the United States and white Protestantism, this is where people are focused. It starts and ends there. Are you in? Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Do you know the moment where you put up your hand or walked the sawdust aisle down to the altar? Do you know that moment that, and, and once you're in, sit back, relax. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, and what a friend do you have in Jesus? There's nothing more to do. When things go bad, you ask him to help him out, but you remember that this whole place is just going to burn anyway. Is I've, you know, there was a song I can remember when I was a teenager that, from a Christian punk band, because that was a thing. And, it was, and it's, it, the song was, The world is like an ice cream sundae. It's all going to melt someday. And for too many, that's their entire perspective on Christianity. And what we miss if we only take the center point of the gospel is we miss God's restorative work. We miss the beauty of creation. We miss the ability to go out and enjoy Shenandoah Valley or the Chesapeake Bay or the Atlantic coast. We miss the ability to be able to sit back and see God's majesty in the world that he made us. And we miss the call we have to protect and work for the good of nature and creation. Then we also will miss his image and likeness in other people, and an image that needs to be redeemed and restored. And the irony of this is that often when Christians fall into this camp, it works out in their politics because there will be an over-conflation of civil religion into politics that wrongly divides Christ biblical Christianity from speaking into political issues at all. What I mean by that is that people lose the ability to see the calling to self-sacrificial love for their neighbor work itself out practically in the needs of the nation that they live in. There's calls towards believing that we are a Christian nation, but those are usually by people who are more obsessed with personal individual rights than the collective good of those around them. And so, people keep Christianity personal without it extending God's justice and values of Christ's kingdom into public life. And with cries of just preach the gospel, a cry that in the American context only comes out when racism is confronted. Pastor, don't get into political issues, just preach the gospel. And that is a fundamental failure to understand that the gospel extends beyond personal salvation. That the gospel is the good news of God renewing and restoring all things, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And as Christians, we still do this. We still ask the same questions that Jesus got from religious leaders and teachers at his time. When he said, he was asked, you know, what Jesus, they were trying to trick him. What's the greatest commandment? He says, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the first response of the people that Jesus was teaching, well, who's my neighbor? And we talked about this last week extensively, but this is why when people cry out, Black Lives Matter, and they're trying to say black people in this country who have been marginalized and oppressed have a right to human dignity and love. Their lives are important, and people respond, all lives matter. What you're doing is saying, who's my neighbor? Do I want people cite all kinds of excuses and reasons for the things we see around us without taking action to try to come alongside people who are suffering? What we're doing is saying, who's my neighbor? When we allow our politics 
to drive our hearts and our actions more than we do the gospel and call ourselves Christians, we are effectively continuing to ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? See, biblical Christianity believes in the fullness of the gospel. We believe in creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so in creation, we believe that, that all things are made by God and created for his glory. And people bear his image and likeness, worthy of dignity and love. And we are entrusted with creation as a stewardship. So all of those things are true. They don't evaporate with the fall. But we also believe in the fall, that we are broken beyond our ability to repair ourselves, that, we are, that, that, that there is an issue of sin within every one of us, and that we should never have question or an inability to admit that we are sinners. That yes, we are broken and sinful. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And all of creation has been impacted by the power of sin. Now remember, in Romans, we've seen this. Sin is not just a mistake, an oops moment. Sin is a power, it is a kingdom of darkness that reigns over creation ever since the fall. And all of creation is groaning, longing in pain. And we, our spirits, we groan inwardly as we await our adoption as sons. And so this groaning is universal. All of us groan in suffering. And we should be able to say both, I am a sinner, everyone around me is a sinner, we can't expect everyone to be perfect, we shouldn't be surprised when people sin, but it's not just human wickedness, that that then sin infuses structures and systems of this world which are also broken because of sin. The fall is pervasive, but God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He entered in for us. This is redemption that Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who is fully God and fully man, the one who is tempted but without sin, the one who suffered unjustly but submitted himself to God, who took the cross for us, unjustly arrested, beaten, and killed by human authorities, even while he is the authority that sustains the life of his torturers. And this is what happened in Christ. We've seen this in Romans chapter 5, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Deny your own sin, you are denying that Christ redeems you. Christ died for the ungodly, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so for us to be redeemed then, the call of Jesus has come that anybody who would follow him, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses and, or forfeits himself? See, what, you, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, in order to follow me, you've got to follow me into suffering if you want to taste glory. This is exactly what we read in Romans 8 that we will receive our inheritance as children of God. The Spirit testifies that we are children of God. We are heirs and co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him and, and then we will be glorified with him. And so that's the pathway to glory. And if we would, Jesus is clear, if we would rather have this present life and have this world and have comfort now and have ease now and have riches now and have our inheritance now, then we lose Christ. The hope that we have, though, is that our inheritance is secure in him, and we know because suffering did not win. 
Injustice did not win. The devil did not win. The powers of this world did not win because Christ broke death and was raised to life. He ascended to the right hand of God and he told us that he's coming again and he tells us in Revelation 21 what his kingdom is like. That there is no mourning or crying. That every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. This creation is not just disposed of in the end. It is renewed and restored to the glory of God as Christ renews and restores all things. And so what we know as Christians is we know what is coming and we know that suffering is inevitable and we know that suffering led Christ to glory and we have hope that he's coming again. And so we can turn with hope and know that everything's going to be restored. And Jesus used this language of childbirth as well. In John 16, he said... He said, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. If you're having a hard time this week, if sorrow is crushing you, if darkness has crept in and you can't see light of hope this week, hear the words of our Savior to you. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, understanding the call of Christ and true gospel, biblical Christianity is so freeing. Because it frees us from fitting categorically into our world systems and adapting the gospel to be more palatable to those around us. Because we're citizens of a different kingdom. And so we're able to engage as sojourners and exiles, as ambassadors of another king, even in the kingdoms of this world. It helps us to keep an eternal perspective so that whatever we face, whatever suffering we face, that we don't have to have our immediate circumstances cloud our vision of true reality because we have a bigger scope that we see things on. The gospel frees us to have courage to walk through suffering and to enter into the suffering of others without having to minimize it, but instead just being able to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn because Jesus has gone before us and he has made a way for us and, if we, and he is the one that will lift our heads so we can keep our eyes fixed on the horizon. Pastor Ray Orland said, suffering does not earn us any glory. Hear that. Suffering does not earn us any glory. Jesus earned the glory for us through his own meritorious sufferings. But our sufferings are meaningful preparation for glory. Pain burns the superficiality out of us. We stop caring about all the wrong things. We are released from bondage to earthly imperatives and intensified in our yearnings for eternal things. In suffering, we can discover how sweet God really is. 
so 2020, like we're all ready to return 2020 to sender, I think. <laughs> like, let's, can we, can we do, have a do-over? But church, the more I look around us and I want to meet together, I wish that we weren't seeing the uh, cries against injustice again because they're right and justified. I, I wish that we weren't seeing the divisions in our nation deepen. I wish for all kinds of things. But on the other hand, if what's happening right now is that we are placed in a position of unique suffering that has made us more dependent on God and set our eyes more on hope in Christ because it has, as Pastor Ray said, uh, it, the pain that we experience is burning the superficiality out of us, that we can stop caring about all the wrong things and be released from bondage to earthly imperatives and have intensified yearnings for eternity, if we can really discover the sweetness of God in this, then praise God even for the suffering we've experienced these five months of 2020. Would I choose to go through them? No. But if it makes me more dependent on Christ, then it's worth it in the end. Because sometimes Christ needs to be all we have for us to realize he's all we need. And I know you're tired. I'm tired. I understand it. The points, I mean, there have been seasons in my life where, where it feels like it's so hard that I wake up in the morning just trying not to die. And so if you're there today, that's okay. You don't have to put on a good face and pretend that this is not a call to happy, clappy, smiley, plastic Christianity. It's hard to keep going. That's why it talks about that we wait with patience. We're groaning inwardly. All of creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. This is not saying it's easy. It's meeting us where we are, though. And it's hard. It's hard to keep engaging with our hearts. It's hard to, to not just let other people do the thinking for you and repost their social media and call it activism and move on and call it a day. And so if you feel weak and you feel tired and you feel weary and unable to take another step, that's the hope that this passage ends with. Likewise, just as we wait with patience, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what we ought, how to pray or what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in a, according to the will of God. So third, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Suffering is inevitable. The only path to glory is through suffering. But if you're in Christ, here's your hope and your comfort. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. He intercedes when we have no words. And all of creation groans, and we groan as well, but we're told the Spirit dwells within us, and he testifies that we are adopted children of God, and he intercedes for us. And do you see that he, his intercession goes deeper than the words we could ever express anyway? And when the Spirit prays for us, it is always in perfect alignment with God's will. 
And so if you're tired, if you don't know how to discern what God's will is, if you're too tired to go on, if you don't know what to do, if you don't know what to pray, if you don't even know how to approach God, if you feel dried out spiritually and feel like you don't even have the words if you were to try to pray, then I say go and be silent and allow the Spirit of God to intercede on your behalf because he will do so and he knows God's will. He knows your groaning. He knows your suffering. Christ has gone before you and opened up the way as an intercessor. And so you have Jesus interceding for you in the presence of God the Father, and you have the Spirit interceding for you while he dwells within you, bringing your heart to God the Father. And so you have nothing to worry about because in Christ, all we have to do when we're tired and weary and worn out and suffering is cling to God. And he is the one who will take care of the rest. You don't always have to have words. You don't have to feel spiritually filled. You don't have to feel like coming to God for him to look at you in love and he has sealed it for you in Christ. And so, briefly, one pastor I looked at this week had some do's and don'ts. When we're suffering, don't assume that your suffering is a result of God's punishment. But do expect that when, su- when the suffering ends, he will give you greater joy. Don't assume that the Lord has abandoned you when you suffer. Do confess your fear and doubt and ask for strength to carry on. Don't presume that your prayers are not heard. Do continue praying even when you don't know what to say. Don't use suffering as an excuse to give up. Do trust that the Lord will magnify his strength in your weakness. So find rest today, even in the storm. You can know that God's presence goes with you even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is David when he was in the depth of sorrow and he cried out a well-known psalm. He said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In fact, we're just going to close with this and make this our prayer. Pray with me. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. For you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our head with oil and our cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, would you help us to trust your guiding hand even when we are walking through death's dark valley. Help us to rely on the presence of your spirit, knowing that you are with us, and bring comfort today. Help us to see that sometimes the table you set for us is in the presence of people that we don't want to be around, but that even in the presence of our enemies, you anoint our heads with oil 
that our cup overflows, that we know that goodness and mercy will follow us, that we'll dwell in your house forever because we are called your children in Christ. We have an inheritance guaranteed in him, testified to by your spirit, and it can never be taken away. So set our eyes expectantly on glory, trusting that you created, that we fell, but that you redeemed us and that you are making all things new, that you'll restore this place and that we get to be a part of your restorative work. We pray today that your spirit would move and draw our hearts to you, whatever we're facing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.